Hey, good morning. Welcome, those in the auditorium, those watching online. Uh, so glad you're here. And I'm uh, so excited. Last week, as you know, we uh, announced our first church plan for Project 20, so we're pumped about that. And uh, man, more in the pipeline that are coming, and just excited to hear the conversations that are happening related to that. So um, just God is really moving some things around in the Alive organization, which makes me really uncomfortable, but also really excited. So that's awesome. Let me have a word of prayer and I'll start. So Lord, thank you so much for these wonderful people and just the high honor to spend this time with them. And Lord, um, we come today um, needing to hear from you and you know, not just us, but the people sitting directly around us. We've come maybe with a significant need uh, just to hear from you. And so we don't want to be any kind of distraction. We don't want to be distracted in any way. We want to just, just open our minds and hearts to you. So would you speak to us? Would you care for us? Would you bring to us what it is you believe we need today? In order for that to happen, hide me in your cross, Lord. I, there's no person that can do That's only you. And we give you praise in your name. Amen. So I was thinking, uh, you know, if you and I were to have this conversation, uh, maybe to say, like, you know, get to know each other a little bit, and I'd say, you know, give me some phrases that you would use to describe your life, and, um, and I, what would those phrases be? And I was thinking, you know, probably nobody I would talk to would say something like, you know, Tom, my life's been a piece of cake. Or my life has been so easy, or my life has kind of just been this like magical. You know, we probably wouldn't use those phrases, at least if we were, you know, past the get to know each other into the honest part. And even if even if your story of your life is a good one, you know, you would say I got a good life. There are chapters that we would all describe as difficult, or as trial, or as perseverance, and they were just tough, tough days. There are things we regret or events that shaped us, and there are periods of, of shame and periods of, uh, of failure. And, and all that you understood already. But Jesus actually came to the planet. And when Jesus came to the planet, he said this thing that kind of seems to jar kind of the reason my life so far. He said this. He said, thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come so that they may have life and have it abundantly or more abundant. So, so don't miss this. Jesus, who knows the phrases we would use to describe our lives, he knows us fully. Jesus, who died for our sins, promises that despite the chapters we wrote in our lives that are terrible, good or bad circumstances, great relationships or train wreck of relationships, Jesus says, I desire to give us this life that is abundant. It's not just for those who are perfect. It's not just for those people who've never screwed up. It's not just for those people who have it all together because those people don't exist it's for everybody. So let me encourage you with this. If you would say, if one of the phrases you would use right now in your life is, you know, Tom, I'm at the bottom of the barrel, then this abundant life is for you. Or if you're just returning to church after a lifetime of chapters you wish you hadn't written, this abundant life is for you. Or if you're kind of self-righteous and you consider yourself better than, well, basically everybody, then this chapter of abundant life, this is for you. If you've been raised in church and pretty much stayed there, never rocked the boat and written a whole lot of G-rated chapters in your life, guess what? Abundant life is for you as well. And so we've been throwing ourselves after this and seeing what does an abundant life look like. And it starts with compelling vision. And, and for some of us, we skipped this step. But now as we're this far into it, as we're looking at this process, we realize how important this step is. And we answered this by saying, I exist too. 
Why are you still breathing? I mean, really, why are you here? Are you existing just to put forth an income and retire well? Is that why you're here? Is that what you exist for? And so the compelling vision kind of nails that down. This is why I'm here. And compelling vision, once you get that figured out, and it's not too late if you skip this step, go back and get it. Then you'll start forming relentless conviction related to that vision. Because the vision you understand is so compelling, it must be accomplished with my one and only life. So your convictions are, I have to do this. It doesn't matter what I face, I have to do this. And what will inevitably happen is once you kind of have that compelling vision and this relentless conviction, there will be a knock at the door. And it will be a call. It'll be a call where God will ask you to take some kind of courageous action in light of the compelling vision. And in light of this relentless conviction, and he'll say, well, you need, this is what I'm asking you to do, and you'll have to decide. And then if you decide, you'll have this point in time where you realize that God has actually given you an anointed authority for that compelling vision. And anointed authority comes from your calling and your connection and personal relationship to him. That's kind of what this whole abundant life is building in us. But today, I sort of want to pause from all these go, go, goes, and I want to pause to talk about how we're approaching this abundant life and this compelling vision, relentless conviction, courageous action, anointed authority. How, what's the mindset of the abundant life? And here's what we're going to discover. It's confidence, humility. I know, I felt your disappointment. In that first blush, I actually had the same sense of disappointment. I mean, this kind of disappointed me when I was writing. I said, really, this is what we want to do? Because at first blush, I want nothing to do with that. And, and I'll, I'll just share with you how shallow I am. Because I have in my mind, the humble do not survive. It's the strong who actually survive. Nobody ever says the humble survive. It's not, it's not even a saying. In fact, do you know what the saying is? Do you know what the saying is? Humble as a church mouse. Question, who wants to be a church mouse? Where's the verse that says humble as a silverback gorilla? That's the one I want. That's the one. I want to be that one, you know. I want to be that humble guy. And yet, and yet, it is clear throughout the pages of Scripture that humility is part of this. Check this out. That's what Paul wrote. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Some of you, your ride to church in the minivan disqualified you already. <laughs> Look at that verse. Come on, people. Don't act like you have it all together. Look at that verse. How many of y'all got like, I read that verse like, I'm out. You know, I mean, I don't have a chance. There's not a chance I'm going to be able to do that. Be completely humble and gentle. Really? Are you married? I mean, how in the world are you going to do that? And then Paul goes even further. Why can't the man mind his own dang business? He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But that's what I do. That's who I am. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And you know what that tells me? Paul didn't drive. Paul never sat on Interstate 85 trying to get five lanes of morons down to one lane. That, he never knew that because that wouldn't happen there. Paul never had a kid who played a sport and another kid's parents on the other team talk smack about your kid. Paul never had that happen because he wouldn't have said that. Humility other than yourself. How about go punch him in the head? You know, that's kind of what I was thinking. This is easy for Paul. This is easy for Paul. My confusion about humility, though, and this whole idea of what Scripture teaches actually starts because of my church upbringing. 
I was raised in the church, and I'm grateful for being raised in the church. But I discovered early on there were these two ditches on both sides of humility. And you don't want to be in either ditch or any of those two ditches, but most of us will identify with one of the ditches. And neither ditch leads to the abundant life. I was taught from an early age that I had a, I had a problem. <laughs> I was actually taught I had a lot of problems, but I had, a, I had a sin problem specifically. I don't know if y'all were raised in that tradition or not, but I was taught from an early age from people like me that I had this sin problem, and I didn't disagree with it. I, I kind of saw that, but I learned the songs that they were teaching in children's in, in church, and they seemed to affirm my sin problem. This is one of my favorite parts. This is one of my favorite verses. It says this, I was sinking deep in sin far from the peaceful shores, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. Well, I'm depressed. Now, the irony of this was how they sold it to you. Because if you know the song, it's a melody that makes your heart sing. You know, that's what the song is. And like, man, I'm miserable. I'm terrible. You know, that's what the whole verse is. They snuck it in on me. Even St. Hank Williams, who, if you're not old, you don't know. But if you are like me, if you're my people and appreciate old dead country music singers, Hank Williams said, I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. And that, friends, is where I picked up the first ditch. It's called the ditch of smallness. And you know what the ditch of smallness believes? Nobody deserves a trophy. And we were raised in it. The view in this ditch is this. Humans are basically bad. Your problem's not psychological. It's that you're human. Human is your disorder. That's the problem. And I remember I grew up in a tradition where they had testi testimonies in church. So people would pop up and it was great because it broke up the monotony of what I do. And so, <laughs> so they would stand up and give these little testimonies of what God was doing in their hearts and life. And I remember sitting as a small boy in my ditch of smallness and someone standing and saying, I'm just a sinner preacher and that's all I'll ever be. I'm a worthless sinner. And I remember thinking, why bother then? What are we doing here on Sunday night instead of going and watching Disney World? Why are we here? What is happening? Honestly, I never felt bad at myself until I went to church. And even as a boy, I remember asking, if there's no hope, why are we here? I mean, is Jesus just some medicated Band-Aid we put on for a week and then we come back and feel miserable again? Even the leader of the Protestant Reformation, who I respect, I'm grateful for, I'm a product, but the dude had some problems. He did. At some point, he seemed to be in this same ditch when he wrote, people are flesh. They can savor nothing but the flesh. Therefore, free will can avail only to sin. Somebody say amen. Don't you dare. In reality, no matter how good we seem, we are each nothing but rottenness and a worm. Now say it. Amen. So turn to your neighbor and say, you are rottenness and a worm. Go ahead, tell them, tell them. You, just get, you get to use the word rottenness. You are rottenness and a worm. Yippee. Friends, you see why we need the praise and worship movement, right? You see, because we were all freaking depressed. That's what was happening. The crazy thing about this ditch of smallness is it seemed validated by almost every news story I heard or back in the day when we all used to watch the evening news. 
He'd tell some story about a girl raped at a frat party or a stepfather who blisters his stepson or a con artist who ripped off the elderly. And you sit there thinking, man, we are all terrible people. Guess what the number one enemy of the ditch of smallness is? Pride. Oh, whatever you do, don't have any pride. Oh, if somebody says you did a good job, say, no, not really. If someone says, oh, man, I, you're really good at that, Tom, someone needs to come forward and say, you're really not that good at that, Tom. Because we don't want you to be prideful. Come on. If someone says, oh, man, that was a great testimony, say, oh, not me, it was just Jesus. Maybe not, maybe you did a good job. No, that'd be pride, can't say that. And so we raised this whole generation of insecure Christians who thought they couldn't believe they had gifts and abilities. If you don't receive a compliment, don't believe in yourself. We renounce, minimize, diminish, and deflate ourselves, keeping our self-appraisal sober and always focused on the negative. That's what God meant by the abundant life. Really? What is wrong with you people? You don't want pride. You got to stay humble. So probably some of us could relate well to the ditch. If I said, what was your upbringing life? Some of you would say, it was a lot like that ditch. That's one side of the road. There's another side of the road that has another ditch. It's not the ditch of smallness. It's the ditch of bigness. In the ditch of bigness, everybody gets a trophy. So the ditch of bigness was built on the self-esteem movement and the positive thinking movement. The, the right view of the self is deep down. You're not bad. You're good. Look at you. You're amazing, pretty much. You're amazing. We're all God-breathed and made in the image of God. And what happened, some of you old enough to see this, churches, politicians, educators, homemakers, we all tried to live within the ditch of the bigness. And the last thing we wanted to do was for little Sally or little Johnny to feel like they weren't in the ditch of bigness, even though they may be terrible at just about everything they've tried. But we don't want to damage their little fragile self-esteem. So we want to say, oh, you're so good. You're so amazing. And they grow up thinking they're okay, but they're not. Carl Rogers taught we have this powerful resources within us that can fuel the healthy growth of our good and unique selves as we grow up. If given the space and authority, he suggested, our wonderfully unique and empowered true selves will emerge. You are special. You're great just as you are. And as a result, we raised a generation who are jacked up and they don't know it because the only thing you can speak against is saying that someone isn't special or someone actually may have a problem. The ditch of smallness taught us to believe we can never get to where we want to go on our own. The ditch of bigness believes there's no place to go. We're already there. You are great just as you are. You do you, boo? You see it, don't you? Come on. You see it in our lives. You see it in our circles, don't you? The problem we have with all this is we all know it doesn't work. In fact, sociologists will tell you the ditch of bigness is actually causing more self-esteem issues in the lives of children than the ditch of smallness. It's not working. 
more than he, probably the most popular television preacher that's out there right now, said this sentence, these two sentences in the exact same sermon within the exact same paragraph. The first thing he says, you cannot hang out with negative people and expect to live a positive life. Two sentences later, other people do not determine your potential. What? Preacher, what did you smoke on the way to church? And people are drinking this in. Oh, that sounded good. It sounded like Jesus. I don't know what he's talking about, but it sounded like Jesus. Which is it? You can't have both. So here's my summary. Now, for all you people crafting an email, I haven't had any scripture yet. It's coming. Just stay with me, okay? I'm just stuck in a couple of ditches. We're coming out. Here's the summary. The ditch of smallness says you're bad. The ditch of bigness says you're good. The ditch of smallness says, are you trustworthy? No. Bigness? Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely trustworthy. Mom said. You avoid in the ditch of smallness pride. In the ditch of bigness, you avoid shame. Don't be ashamed for anything you ever did. You dwell on the negative in the ditch of smallness. Of course, you dwell on the positive in the ditch of bigness. Your goal for yourself in smallness is deflation because pride's the enemy. Goal in bigness is inflation. Pride's good. I need to believe. Ditch of smallness leads to shame. The ditch of bigness leads to pride. Do you know what's between two ditches? The road. It's the road. And the road between these two ditches for the abundant life is a confident humility. Confidence, you understand the definition of that. It's assurance that something is true and is going to happen. There's nothing to prove. You just know it is true, and your confidence is in what is true. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to argue yourself. You don't have to power up over people. If it's just true, it's true. I'm reading through the scripture, and this morning I was reading the book of Deuteronomy, and it said, the way you tell if a prophet is from God is this, what they said comes true. I wrote that down. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's in the Bible. That's an amazing verse. It's in the Bible. Humility, on the other hand, is letting go of self-serving power and position in order to leverage your power and position for the benefit of something good or someone else. Let me show you the road between the ditches in the life of Jesus. On his final night, um, before the arrest crucifixion business, Jesus is going to have dinner with his closest friends. These are the people he's done life with. They're amazing. They're, They're wonderful. They're his buddies. And he knows in the room that there's one there who is going to sell him out for some money. He knows it's going to happen. He's in the room. He also knows that the guy who says he's his closest friend is actually going to say he doesn't even know him three different times in the next 12 hours. He also knows that everybody sitting in the room, everybody around the table, will all desert him and hide in fear at his time of greatest need. And then we pick up this part of the story. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. That's the most important part of of what follows. You have to understand, Jesus understood he was the most powerful man in the room. He was the most powerful man on the planet. And he understood it in this moment. Before we launch into the story, Jesus knew it. It's not like later on he said, oh, I didn't realize I was that powerful. He knew right here. He had the power. 
and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Hard for us to make the, understand this, what happened. Um, this is a sandal culture. And so the roads are dirt and there's animals in the town. So you can imagine the fungus and dirt that was all part of, of our feet during this day. And so it was customary to, to wash a person's feet whenever they entered a home. And the washing was usually done by a servant or a slave because you can, that's a very low position in, in that culture. Uh, and you do it especially before you shared a meal. But for whatever reason, uh, someone had let the servant or the slave off that night. So all his buddies are gathered in the room for the big dinner, and, and there was no one to wash the feet. So Jesus took it upon himself to do this lowliest of tasks. Uh, I think the only analogy that I can come up with that may be close to this is if you can imagine working in the farm and doing whatever you have to do on the farm, and then you come in and someone says, wash your hands before you eat, and you think that'd be a good idea. Jesus is fully aware. He had the most power in the room. He knows it. And therefore, <laughs> he served. You should know this. Guess what the disciples were arguing about the night before? Who was the greatest? The night before. They're walking along the road. I think I'm probably better than you. I think I'm better than you. Mom said I get a trophy. They're arguing about that on the way in. Who's the greatest? Nobody was thinking humble thoughts. They were all in ditches. Everybody was thinking, serve me because I get a trophy because I'm with Jesus. I'm one of his disciples. I get a special office and a ribbon. When he had finished washing his feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Then he says, do you all understand what I've just done? You call me teacher and Lord. Now, what that means is that's a term of respect. You think of the highest title you could give somebody to esteem them in our culture. That's what this is. You're teacher and Lord, and you're right to call me that. That's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash each other's feet. I've set this as an example And you should do as I've done it. And now you're ready to hear, I think, the first principle of confident humility that keeps us on the road to the abundant life. Because Jesus was confident in who he was and why he was here, compelling vision. He understood why he was still breathing. He could perform the lowliest job without hesitation in order to achieve a higher purpose. One more scene for confident humility, and then I'll try to put some butter to bread here. So this time, it's just a couple of, couple of hours later. It's like 24 hours later. Jesus has now been arrested, and he's been abused by the religious court. But the religious court didn't have the power to put anybody to death, and that's what they wanted for Jesus. And so they've taken them, him to the Roman court in front of the governor, whose name's Pilate, hoping Pilate would do this. Pilate has Jesus flogged, and the Roman soldiers beat up on him, and all this kinds of stuff. But... 
Pilate has no reason to crucify him. He can't find a reason. And he tells the Jewish leaders, I can't find a reason. The Jewish leaders respond this way. We have a law, and according to the law, he must die. Why? He claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Pause. Because you just saw the trigger word that throws you into one of the ditches. It's the word afraid. If you're walking in the road and something comes barreling down the road and you don't know what it is, what do you do? Head for the ditch, right? You head for the ditches. Pilate is getting ready to head for the ditches. Watch it. He's afraid. He's very afraid. Not confident humility. Whatever he does next is going to be rooted in fear and insecurity. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus didn't answer him. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus understood that he had all power. We just heard, remember? Pilate says, don't you realize I have power? Jesus answered, you don't have any power over me if it wouldn't be given to you from above. In this part of the story, confident humility looks like this. Jesus was confident in who he was and why he was there, compelling vision. Because of that, he didn't have to leverage his power at his disposal to serve himself, but to achieve a higher purpose. Now, if I was preaching on the church, which I'm not, this would be a great time to talk about Project 20 and a church that decided we shouldn't just try to make ourselves bigger and more comfortable, but we should try to plant like 20 Christ-centered communities. But as I said, I'm not talking about that, so I'm not even going to bring that up. But I will remind you of our summary of where we are. Confident humility in Jesus said he could perform the lowest job without hesitation to achieve a higher purpose. Who do you know like that? Who do you know in your life who models that? He didn't leverage the power at his disposal to serve himself, but to achieve a higher purpose. Man, that's challenging. Because our default from the ditch of smallness or the ditch of bigness is to control more, to have more power, to use our positions or our finances or our personality or our ability to persuade or our beauty to be powerful for our own good, our own comfort. Where do we put this as people that are seeking the abundant life or at least trying to learn what it is people seeking to write new chapters with our lives, different from the ones we've written before. I, I've come to this conclusion, and I think I'm right on it, so you can decide, but I think that the abundant life only comes through a surrendered life. If I'm still trying to grab a hold of absolutely everything I can so that I can control whatever it might be, that's not the abundant life. That's not the surrendered life. That's the come get it life. And it doesn't lead to abundance. It leads to sleepless nights and anxiety and angst and worry. The abundant life has to go through the surrendered life where we release everything 
to whatever God would desire or have done in order for the compelling vision he's given us to happen. We have those seasons of our life where there are no fireworks, when there's little enthusiasm or excitement. I like those seasons of life. They're front porch, rocking chair kind of moments in life. Some people call them drudgery. I know some people really are opposed to that. Most of us spend our days going from one meeting to another, one appointment to another, experiencing nothing but the daily routine with its common everyday tasks. Probably that's what most of us had this week. But here's the thing about the abundant life. The routine matters. The menial matters. It did for Jesus. Don't always expect God to give you his thrilling moments but learn to live in those ordinary times of life by the power of God. Too often people want to do great visionary things for God, but they don't want to do the common and necessary things for God. I want to take this hill for God. I just don't want to mow the grass for God. I want to fight for Jesus. I just don't want to care for that person for Jesus. They want to accomplish for God, but they don't want to serve God. They even want to be seen as being for God, but privately when no one's looking, they know they're not for God. They're still for themselves because the life has never been surrendered. They want to use God to make them appear great and important. Everybody gets a trophy, but they're not. The greatest hindrance in our spiritual life may be we will only look for big things to do, yet Jesus took up a basin and a towel. He took up a basin and a towel. The aim of the will of God, the with God life, is for us to know God deeply and intimately. The question we must ask as we seek this abundant life is this. Do we know him where we are today, even if it's a point of drudgery or perseverance, it's easy to know God on a mountaintop. It is tough to know God in a valley. It is easy to know God when someone has cast a vision and we're taking hills. It is tough to know God when you're packing the parachutes. This year for Christmas, I um, gave all of my family a copy of Oswald Chambers' My Utmost for His Highest. Um, I even gave one to my son-in-law. Thought y'all would be more impressed with that than now. I just thought, what would Jesus do? He'd probably do that, so I had to. And uh, hopefully he's not watching this service. Um, and I just thought we'd all kind of do it together. And, you know, Lisa and I both went through my utmost for his highest in our freshman year of college or sometime in college. And, and we just, man, we journaled after that thing. And, um, and so this, this week, you know, Lisa and I are sitting in our two chairs in our living room having our time with Jesus in the morning. And I start grabbing my pen and start underlining and, and groaning 
in an Oswald, <laughs> and I'm sitting there like that, and Lisa said, chuckles, because goes, <laughs> she'd been up a bit longer than I am. She said, uh, are you reading Oswald? I said, yeah, <laughs> he's wrecking me. Here's what Oswald said to me this week. He said, a spiritually vigorous saint or people seeking the abundant life sees every situation in which he or she finds himself as the means of obtaining a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you get it? Whatever it is, you're grinding through right now. It is a means in the fully surrendered life, only in the fully surrendered life. It's not fully surrendered. This isn't going to work. But it's a means for the abundant life, a means of obtaining a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that person has an attitude of unrestrained, abandoned, and total surrender about him. Confident humility means whatever we may be doing, eating, drinking, healing, caring, hurting, or washing disciples' feet, we realize and recognize Jesus Christ is in it. I didn't make this spiritual connection until I passed 50 in my life. But it has changed the way I relate to God. Every phase, every part of my life has a counterpart in the life of Jesus. I just have to see it. Jesus knowing that the next day he was going to go through something that people would celebrate at Easter for thousands of years. The next day would be his most important work. He would suffer, die on a cross, and then three days later he would be resurrected. How would you prepare for the biggest moment of a life of, of, of all time? How would you prepare for that? Because Jesus spent the night before washing feet. No strategy. No emails. No calling important people. He just washed feet. So the next day he would walk in confident humility down the Via Della Rosa, get nailed to a tree, and one day, a couple of days later, he would walk with confident humility out of the grave. Somebody say amen. Jesus, thank you for your love and your goodness. Thank you for the challenge of Scripture. My gracious Lord, mercy, mercy, mercy. Constantly calling us forward. Oh, shaping us into being more like you making us less and less like parts of us we don't want to be. I pray you would make us pure and holy. Help us to avoid the ditches or climb out of the ditch, whichever one we're in, to walk as a community of people, confident humility, not because we're great, but because we're surrendered to the one who's great. Give us the opportunity this week to wash feet, not so we can look good at ourselves, not so we can care for somebody and feel we did a good thing, but so we can be more like you. We want to be more like you, pure and holy, pure and holy, pure and holy. Amen.